Good morning, folks. Welcome to Cornerstone Church. Wasn't that great to see what the kids are doing, the young people are doing? And there are lots of students away today as well. They, a number of the student, I think all the universities are having their weekend away. So all our students are away as well. So like what Ben said, the average age of the room has gone right up. So we can be really mature this morning in all that we do. It's great to have you with us. If you're here for the first time, you join us in the middle of a series that we're doing in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the last recorded event that we have chronologically. Uh, event we have in the Old Testament, even though it doesn't come at the end of the Old Testament, chronologically in terms of the history of God's people, the last thing that we hear, then there's 400 years of silence before that silence is broken by the angels declaring that Jesus Christ is going to be born. And it is a story where God's people have been in disarray, they've been exiled, and over a period of time they've returned back to Jerusalem. God has been gracious in keeping His promise, using pagan kings, and they've returned back. Now, the book of Nehemiah is about uh, a, a man who goes and returns back, back to Jerusalem, even though he'd never lived there. He'd lived in a place called Persia. He'd grown up there. He had a privileged job, and he moved back to Jerusalem because he'd heard that God's people were in a mess, and they were in a mess because the walls of the city had broken down that made them vulnerable to attack and it actually reflected a lot of the heart of the people. So Nehemiah returns back with a broken heart for the state of God's people, the state of God's kingdom. And we see that he is a man who prays. He asks God for wisdom in the midst of that. And then last week, what we heard is that Nehemiah found favor in the eyes of his boss, who was King Artaxerxes, who was the, 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 um, the ruler of the Persian uh, nation, but also the ruler of the world at that point. And the king, uh, Nehemiah finds favor in the eyes of the king, and the king lets Nehemiah return. And not only does he let him return, he says, actually, go and speak to these guys. These guys will give you some resources. So here's a young man who's thinking, how's this ever going to happen, and finds favor in the eyes of the king. He then walks around Jerusalem at night on his own, surveying everything, looking at the state of the walls. And as he does that, this time alone, God opens his eyes to see the needs, but also the great opportunities. The needs and the opportunities. And in the, in, the, in the midst of opposition, he gives Nehemiah vision. And then he gives this vision to the leaders of Jerusalem at the time, highlighting the need, but he couches that in the context of God's grace. In chapter 2, verse 18, he tells the leaders of how God's hand had been upon him, how he'd found favor in the eyes of the king of Persia. And then in the midst of opposition from some guys called Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem, he declares to them that the God of heaven will make God's people prosper. So he walks around and he sees the state, but he not only sees the need, he sees the great, uh, great opportunity. And in response to this vision casting, in response to the need, in response to the opportunity, God's people catch the vision and rise and start to build. And what we have in front of us in chapter 3 is a record of 38 names, 42 working teams from across seven different neighborhoods that caught the vision that Nehemiah gave and were part of the rebuilding of the wall for God's glory. Names that are mentioned anywhere else. Names that nobody knows anything about. Normal, everyday, regular folk catch the vision that comes from God for the needs, but also the opportunities of what it is to be God's people, and they rise and they build. So if you know anything about Nehemiah 3, you know that it is full of long, complicated names. But these are names that are written in God's Word, so we're going to read it. Because Nehemiah records it, and God wants it recorded for us, because the Bible is profitable for us today, and we're going to read it together. Now, before anyone casts any judgment, none of you know how to pronounce these names. And I will say them quickly and confidently, and you'll be convinced that the way I am saying them is the correct way. So let's go. Nehemiah 3. Here we go. This is the word of the Lord. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. 
And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to him, Zachor, the son of Imri, Imri built. The sons of Hesani built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Meramoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired. And next to him, Meshalem, the son of Merakiah, the son of Meshazelabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Barna, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to save the Lord. Jediah, the son of Paziah, and Mashalam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yeshaniah. <laughs> they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired Mel- Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Merathonite, the men of Gibeon, and Mispah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son Hahahiah, <laughs> goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphael, the son of Ur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Haramuth, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashbaniah, repaired. Malkajah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of Ovens. If you're having a baby, there's some great names in here, folks. <laughs> Next to Shulam, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the Dung Gate. Malkajah, the son of Rahab, ruler of the district of Beth Hacharem, repaired the Dung Gate. He repaired it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the, the son of Kolhazer, ruler of the district of Mishmar, repaired the Fountain Gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, the king's garden, and as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Hasbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethsor, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rahum, the son of Bainate, Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kelah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Beviah, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district, Kaliah, I said it differently before. Next to him, Azair, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mishpah, repaired another section opposite the ascents to the armory at the buttress. After him, Barak, the son of Zabiah, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Meramoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hanadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, Zadok, the son of Imer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshalom, the son of Barach, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchajah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. This is, oh, thank you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just remember, nobody knows anything about these people. 
I just want to know. I want to meet the guy who, made, who fixed the dung gate. What was that like, mate? I want to know what that was like. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that your word is profitable for us today. And Father, these are real people who you used for your glory and for their good. We are real, normal people. Use us, we ask, for your glory and for each other's good. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Folks, I got seven points from this passage. Number one, servant leaders set the tone for the community. Servant leaders set the tone for the community. See, Nehemiah has sought the Lord, and the Lord has given him a vision, and the leaders of God's people step up to work. And you see verse 1. We have the high priest Eliashib and his brothers who were also priests. They're the first to be mentioned. Now, it's significant that Nehemiah doesn't mention the merchants or the politicians first. No, who does he mention first? The spiritual leaders. The leaders of God people. And this sets the tone for the chapter. And more importantly, this sets the tone for the people, for how the work was to be done. See, Eliashib was the high priest, the one who would make sacrifice on behalf of the people before God. And his brothers, the other priests, were to teach, and they were to shepherd God's people. See, their roles were spiritual, but they also recognized that their spiritual role also had a practical element that they had to also step out of their offices. They had to step out of their studies. They had to step into the context of the real needs at the real time and set the example and the tone for God's people. They led by example. We then go on to see verses 9 to 18, that there are six different rulers, six different rulers of six different districts getting their hands dirty, setting an example, getting to work. Folks, leadership in God's kingdom is servanthood. It's servanthood. See, it's leadership that takes the initiative for the benefit of other people. I'm not going to give any political statements. I'm not going to stand there and do that. But the problem with our world is that there is a leadership deficit. Why? Because people lead for themselves, not for the sake of others. See, leadership is the initiative that moves us forward to serve them and benefit other people. And godly leaders lead, but their motivation is to serve. And this is the example. Can I have someone else's microphone? This is through my head. This is the blue one. Is that okay? Can we use that one? Make sure it's on the live screen for folk. Godly leaders lead, but their motivation is to serve. And folks, when leaders serve, it does motivate those who follow to serve also. It does. See, God calls all of us to be those who serve. In fact, God says that all of us are a community of servant leaders. When you read in 1 Peter 2 verses 9, he describes God's people as a royal priesthood. See, the role of the church, the role of God's people is to serve the people who are around us. We are to lead them to God. We are to bring restoration. So servant leadership, yes, is about those who may be in a position of office or authority to, to serve and to leave, but it's also a call for all of us to be servants to those who are around us. We are a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. So straight away in this passage, we see that it's servant leadership that sets the tone for God's people to work. But we also see the opposite to servant leadership in this passage. Have a look at verse 5 of chapter 3. The next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. So their Lord was probably Nehemiah or, or so, someone else, but also the fact that they wouldn't serve Nehemiah, those that were leading, was also an, an indicator that they weren't prepared to serve the Lord at the same time. Now, the Tekoites were from a town which was about five miles south of Bethlehem. So in one sense, they had no vested interest in building Jerusalem. But the people came along to serve, but their leaders, their nobles, wouldn't stoop to serve. They weren't prepared to take orders from Nehemiah. As far as they're concerned, this work was beneath them. It wasn't of their concern. Alexander Strauch 
writes a book about biblical eldership, and he, in his book, he gives the difference between servant leadership and selfish leadership. He says this, one seeks control to control people. The other seems to serve people. One promotes self, but the other prostrates self. One seeks prestige and position, but the other lifts up the lowly and the despised. The difference between servant leadership and selfish leadership. And we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, we see this wonderful picture of godly leadership. And Paul, as he writes, uh, Peter, as he writes to the churches, he says, I exhort the elders, the leaders among you, as, fellow, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partakers in the glory that is going to be revealed, you are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful game, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Right at the beginning of this passage, we see that it is servant leadership that sets the tone for the building of God's kingdom. And for us, folks, the greatest example of servant leadership is the Lord Jesus himself. John 13, he gets on his knees, and what does he do? He washes the feet of his disciples. He gets water. He gets whatever the soap would be that they used. He gets black towels, and he washes the filthy, dusty, dirty feet of those who misunderstand him. Those aren't 100% why they're following him. Those at times have probably let him down to some extent. What does he do? He gets on his knees, and he washes their feet. And we see the ultimate act of servant leadership in that he humbles himself even unto death. He dies for people like you and for people like me. See, in this passage, it is servant leadership that sets the tone for the community. For us, as those that want to see the kingdom of God, have somebody, the ultimate leader, who sets the tone for our community. He not only got his knees to wash, he gave his life and died so that we can live. Amen? Number two, the building of the kingdom became the people's priority. See, the people followed the example of the leadership, and they set aside preference, comfort, and even embraced weaknesses to have the building of the walls as their priority. Have a look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Next to them, Uzziel, the son of Hahiah, something like that. How do you say that? They were goldsmiths. And they repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Verse 32. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. See, what we read is he had people coming to them saying, we know nothing about building. We know nothing about, about putting mortar down. We know nothing about this, but we're here. We're here. We're willing to help. What can I do? See, the pressing need took priority over any ability, any skill, any, inverted comma, calling that they felt that they had been given by God. See, you had goldsmiths who needed to work creatively with their hands, were willing for their hands to get calluses on them from mixing mortar. You had the perfumers who probably smelt wonderful all day, willing to get smelly for the cause of building the wall. You had merchants that were all about the bottom line, took more of an interest in a plumb line rather than whatever money was coming in for the sake of the glory of God and the building up of his people. See, the building of the kingdom became the priority of the people. Folks, kingdom work should be our priority because only kingdom work will last for an eternity. Kingdom work should be our priority. And that at times means doing things that we aren't comfortable with. 
doing things and engaging in things that we're not even able to do. And for our context, whether that's in being part of gospel community, in the part of the church, in part of engaging in our neighborhood. But folks, it's also using the gifts and the resources and the opportunities that God has given us. See, the leaders set the example and the people followed by making the building of the kingdom of God and his glory and the building up of the people the priority. What are the other things, folks, that we have in our list of our priorities that sit above the kingdom of God? See, it's not about throwing those things out and coming up with this, what is this sort of thing in the aretha of, of the kingdom of God. No, it's actually living out the reality of where you find yourselves with the gifts that you've got for the glory of God. How do we parent? How do we engage in our marriages? How do we engage in our communities? How do we engage in our work? Are we doing that for the cause of God being glorified and for the good of other people? Or are we doing that for us? See, the people, the people made the building of the kingdom their priority. Number three, the people commenced the building where they were. Where they were. Have a look at verse 23 of chapter 3. After them, Benjamin Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, 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 or whatever, son of Hanani, repaired beside his own house. Verse 28, above the horse gate, the priest repaired, each one opposite his own house. See, these people took responsibility for the bits of the wall where God had placed them, opposite their houses. Their eyes were open to the needs that maybe before they had not seen. God had opened up their eyes through the vision that he'd given Nehemiah. He'd opened them up and they'd seen, oh my word, look at the state of the wall here. Look at the state of the wall over there. And folks, it wasn't just like a nod at a sermon or a tear of conviction during a worship song. They stepped out of their homes and they addressed the needs of the wall where God had them. And as God's people here now, the question is, where does God have you? So often in our culture, it's all about what's coming next. It's all about the next stage. It's all about, you know, if you're a teenager, when I be, get to university, life will be amazing. And then I'm dreaming for the job and a marriage and children and then retirement and then grandchildren and then death. Look, if you keep on looking forward, that's where it ends. See, the issue is this, folks. We spend so much time thinking about what God is calling us to in the future rather than seeing where God has called us to now in the present. So where does God have you in terms of your responsibility to build up the kingdom of God? Where does he have me? But for starters, he has you and has me in a particular family, doesn't he? Whatever the circumstances of those families are, he has you living in a street. He has you living in a house. He has you working amongst colleagues. He has people that you do hobbies with and engage with. And for many of the people that you engage with in all of those contexts, the walls, their spiritual walls are broken down. And God has us in the midst of it to be the one who shares the good news of Jesus with them. Where does God have you? Where does God have your gospel community? the ministry of the community that you may be in. Are your eyes, are our eyes open to the situation of where God has us? Are we rising up to build for his kingdom in that context? Let me tell you this wonderful story. A number of years ago, there was a gang of us. Uh, we used to play five-a-side every Wednesday. Every Wednesday, we used to play five-a-side. Probably 10, 10, 11, 12 years ago. And there was a young guy that used to play with us called Marco. Now, Marco owns a curry house on Picton Road, Cafe Naz. So go. Go to Cafe Naz on Picton Road. Said, Steve Robbo mentioned you. We want to bless you and get a curry from him. All right. And Marco, Marco owned the curry house. Now, there was a couple that used to come to our church, John and Jan. And John was one of the elders. And they used to go every Friday because it was the law to have a curry in Cafe Naz. Every Friday. They'd be there every Friday. Now, Marco used to be a professional footballer in Iran. And we invited him to play footy, and he'd come and play footy with us. And this one particular day, we said to him, Marco, we're going to go for a drink after the footy. Do you want to come? He says, oh, I can't, I can't. I've got to get back to the restaurant. I said, okay, fine. He said, I've got to get back for John. 
So what do you mean you've got to get back for John? He said, I've got to get back for John because when I come and play football, John works in the restaurant so I can cook. Come. And I'm like, what? Now, John was a, working in a further education. John had money. John didn't do it for work. Why was John giving up a Wednesday night? He was giving up a Wednesday night so Marco would come and play football with a gang of Christians that maybe, just maybe through that relationship, he would hear about Jesus and engage. And he was willing to work where he was and give up time on a Friday, Wednesday night to serve in a restaurant without pay so this guy can be amongst Christians. That's seeing where you are and seeing how you can play a part in the building of God's kingdom where you are. What a wonderful story. What a wonderful example. Marco was still yet to know the Lord Jesus. Pray for him. Pray for him. See, where does God have you? The other question is this. What age are you? This is another thing in our culture. Everybody's trying to be young. We're all trying to be young. Look at the way I'm dressed. I'm trying to be young. <laughs> is a denim jacket young? I don't know. I'm trying my best. But we're all trying. We're all joining gyms in January. And those gyms become things that we do. And then come March, they become charities we give to. <laughs> we're all trying to be young. I've hit my back. Literally, I don't know how. See, the reality is this, we are all growing. But what comes with growing in age yet is a reminder of the brokenness of the world. But the Bible tells us that as we grow in him, we grow with wisdom and we grow with experience. And the reality of trusting the Lord and knowing the joy in the Lord in the midst of the brokenness of the world is an experience that is invaluable to the church. I want to talk to those of you in our church who are older, those of you who are maybe of retirement age, Cornerstone Church do not need you to be people in your 60s, 70s, and 80s trying to be people in their 30s and 40s. We need you to be people in your 60s, 70s, and 80s with all that wealth and experience to pour in to the young deadheads of our church of which I am chief. We need you with all that experience. That's where God has you. Don't try and be 30. And for those of us who are younger and younger than me, you have the enthusiasm, the energy, and the know-how, and the understanding of the culture. We need you as a church together. That's where God has you, in your universities, in your workplaces, in your new marriages, with your new kids, whatever it is. It's not tap-out time to concentrate on this. No, it's a great opportunity where God has me for the building of his kingdom and the building up of his people. Where does God have you? See, the building commenced where the people were. Number four, they worked as families. Verse 12, next to Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Now, folks, this sort of work at that time was usually done by men and was also expected only to be done by men. But here, Shalom gets his daughters involved in the work, and Nehemiah records it. Folks, gospel ministry is a family affair. It's not a singular event or a collection of events. Gospel ministry is a family affair. I was at a wedding last Saturday. Dave and Grace got married. And Grace's family are from Africa. And her dad, when he gave the, uh, Ben, his name was, it still is, <laughs> his name Ben stood up and gave, gave a speech. He says this. He says, there's a saying where he comes from, and you've all heard this before, it takes a village to raise a child. So it takes a church to raise a child also. What he's saying is to raise children is a family affair. It's not, just, it's not a collection of singular events. It's the involvement of all different people at different contexts in different times. And it's the same with gospel ministry. It's a family affair. So my question is, folks, in the context of our reality, do we keep our kids away from ministry? Do we keep them away out here? Think about our gospel community gatherings. And if you're not in a gospel community, ask the one on the Connect team. Our gospel community gatherings, are our gospel community gatherings about being together and then we need to get rid of the kids so we can get down to the real Bible stuff. See, have the kids in. Keeping the kids up late one night a week is not going to do them any harm. Can I tell you this? If they're amongst God's people with the word open and prayers being prayed, it will do nothing but good. Nothing but good. It might make your morning uncomfortable, but it'll do nothing but good. It is a family affair. 
See, God uses our children and our families for his glory. Here's a guy, takes his daughters, gets them involved in work that only men were expected to do. He broke the cultural norm because he wanted his daughters to be part of building the kingdom of God. For those of us who have kids, is that our passion? Or is it getting them into the next school the more important thing? Or getting them to the GCSEs or A-levels or whatever that may be? Is that the priority? Because, folks, if that's the priority, we're missing the point. My mom and dad are here. My, dad, my dad's 69. He's in there with the kids, right? I want to big up my parents. And my mom's sitting over there. When we were kids, my mom and dad used to go out on a Saturday night. And I know this now, they used to go and get a sandwich from Sainsbury's and sit in a car park, right, on a Saturday night. I didn't know that at the time, because I thought they had money when they didn't. I thought they went to nice restaurants. And they used to say to me, Stephen, invite all the young people from church back. I was about 15, 16. Invite all the young people from church back to our house. And what we want you to do is ring everybody, not just your friends, even the people in the young people's group that maybe you wouldn't usually invite. And I'd sit there on the phone, on, on, on a proper phone that used to punch you know, numbers in and hold like this. I had to sit on a stool by the phone. I couldn't wander around the house. And I'd speak to people's parents and invite the kids over. What a blessing. They were prepared to sit in a car park and have us knowing that their house was being used by their own children to bless other children in the church. Folks, it is a family affair. It's interesting, Proverbs 22, verse 6 says this, Train up your child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. I don't think that's a promise that if you share the gospel with them, they will become Christians. That's nowhere promised in the Bible. But if you train your children in the ways of God, they won't depart from it. And that departing from it doesn't necessarily mean they'll follow directly in the footsteps, but it, often it'll be the way you live for the kingdom and for God's people that the thing that will draw them. Even if they reject Jesus, there will be something that draws them. Community, given of self, given of home, given of marriage, given of whatever it is for the cause of Christ and the good of other people. I'm telling you, they will not depart. Why won't they depart? Because that's what it is to be human, folks. To build for the glory of God and to bless other people. Wouldn't it be amazing if our kids live out ministry not only when they're older, but even now, because of the example of God's people building and including them in the everyday of what it is to be God's people in Cornerstone Church. Wouldn't it be amazing? It'd be amazing. See, kingdom work as a family is the best thing that you can show them, give them, and engage with them. And if you're single, you are also part of that. You're also part of that. Be part of a family. Be part of a gospel community. Love those children. Give yourself because gospel ministry is a family affair. They worked as families. Number five, they worked in unity. As you read through the passage, did you notice? You see this repeated phrase, next to them, next to them, next to them, next to them, and next to them, and next to them. See, as Nehemiah walked around the walls watching the people build, he saw families working alongside each other. People from different regions working alongside each other. People with different gifts, skills, experiences, working in unity and working in partnership for the glory of God and for the good of his people. They worked together in unity. One of the reasons why the walls were broken up because they had no unity. Psalm 133 tells us this, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That brothers there is brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil of the head running down the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. He was the high priest. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. See, you notice there, verse 1, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. What the psalmist is saying there is we as God's people have unity. That unity has been won by Jesus. We are united together if we are Christians. The question is, do we live in that unity? Do we dwell in that unity? And the psalmist says, behold how good and pleasant it is when they dwell in unity. And when they dwell in unity... It is, they function the way that they're meant to function. Aaron, the oil is running down. He's functioning as the high priest. And there is great fruit. It's like the dew that falls on the mountain of Zion. There's great fruit. 
And then God commands blessings, blessings that will last for an eternity. Folks, when God's people live and work in unity for his glory, the fruit that comes is eternal. Amen? It's eternal. We need to dwell in unity. We, need, we don't need to fight for unity. Jesus has already won that one. We just need to live in the house that he's created. And what we see in Nehemiah, and next to them, and next to them, and oh my word, these people have come in from there, and next to them, they're doing that. What a blessing it must have been for Nehemiah. What a blessing it is, isn't it? When you see God's people working together for his glory, it's there. It's there that God will command blessing that will last for an eternity. And folks, not only in the context of our church, we need to dwell in unity amongst the churches that we have relationship with. We're part of the Cornerstone Collective. All the churches that we've planted over the last 14 year, nearly 14 years have come, and we're together. We're on mission together. We love each other. We want to be side by side in a list somewhere in eternity. And they worked with them, and they worked with them, and even them on the Wirral worked with them. We want to be part of the relationship with other gospel-preaching churches in our city. We're not in a competition. We're on the same team. Your Cornerstone Church, next to Christ Church, next to Bridge Chapel, next to Bethel, next to Belvedere, next to Grace Church, Halewood, next to St. Barnabas, next to Frontline Church, next to all the churches seeking to build the walls of the kingdom here in Liverpool. We're not in competition. We want to see that not only locally, we want to see that nationally, we want to see that internationally. We live in a day and age where we can stand next to brothers and sisters in India, in America, in Southeast Asia, in Australia, as they seek to build together. We have a big house that we can dwell in because of what Jesus has done for us. And folks, everyone has a role. What's really wonderful about this, and I've said it several times, is that there are names mentioned in here that nobody knows. Nobody, nobody will know till we get to heaven. I'm just going to go on and say, how do you say your name? Just let me know. How do you say your name? But we're going to meet these people. And 1 Corinthians 12 tells us, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, slave or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And then he goes on to say that the hand can't say to the foot that the foot can't be part of the body, and it goes on. Folks, we are all part of the body. We are all united in the body of Christ. See, they worked in unity. My prayer is that Cornerstone Church, Cornerstone Collective, Acts 29, of which we're part of, will be a church and a group of churches who are marked by gospel humility that leads to generosity and partnership that flows from an understanding of true gospel unity. True gospel unity. Number six, they work. The work required people dying to self. It wasn't glamorous. It was tiresome. It was dirty. Not least for Mekaija. Mekaija, is that his name? The poor fella had to build the dung gate. And the dung gate is what you think it is. It's where all the dung went. He was willing and he was a ruler of a district. He was a leader. He was willing to get in the midst of the mess and see it built for the glory of God. Gospel ministry is not glamorous. It's tiring, it's painful, it's costly, and it's for a lifetime. But it's exactly how the Lord Jesus said it would be. Luke 9, he said to all, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would lose his life will lose it. So, sorry, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Folks, you might have visions of going across the world to tell people about Jesus, but if you're not prepared to walk across the street, put that vision to bed. You may have a vision of being somebody that plants a church, but if you're prepared to be a presence in your own house and in your own street, put that vision to bed.
Because ministry, gospel ministry, whether you are the pastor or whether you sit in the pew, is not glamorous. It is tiring, it is costly, but it's worth it. But it's worth it. Because as you look and as you see and as you stand next to and as you baptize and as you see people sing and as you walk in the midst of the mess, you see people whose walls spiritually are broken down and now being built because they've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And for some reason, God has used you to be part of that. When the phone call goes and there's difficulties and there's issues and we get all frustrated because people aren't growing in the way that they should and the, the, their walls aren't seen to be building. No, we are called to die to self, to lose our own lives for the sake of the glory of God and for the sake of the other people. And we limp along together till Jesus returns. Gospel ministry is not easy. It's not glamorous. It's hard. And the people were willing, especially the Dungate guy, to die to self for the sake of building God's glory. Are we? Am I? And finally, number seven, the central reason for building was worship. It was worship. See, in this recording of all who worked on the wall, Nehemiah, verse one, starts with the sheep gate, walks all around the world, and ends at the sheep gate. See, the work began with the spiritual leaders working on the sheep gate. Now, folks, the sheep gate was where the sheep and all the other animals were passed through on their way to the temple to be sacrificed for the sins of God's people. And the sheep gate was at the northeast end of the city, and it was, where, it was from that direction that the greatest threats from other nations would be coming. See, they started the work, not at the easiest point, but at the point of most vulnerability, most danger, and most need. Vulnerability, danger, and need because of the outside threat, but also because of the internal threat. See, folks, as you read through the Bible, God's people were most vulnerable when they failed to walk with him and failed to obey him. God's people were in most need when he, he wasn't the center of their lives, when they failed to serve each other the way God had intended them to. They were in most danger when they failed to see the seriousness of their sin, when they stopped making sacrifices, when their affections were captured by other things and people, and they took their eyes from their salvation. See, in the building of God's people, the priority and the starting point was their relationship with God. And folks, in the building of Cornerstone Church, the starting point is our relationship with God. Amen? It's our relationship with God. And where do we see this? Where do we go? We go to the cross and resurrection. That's where we go. We go to the place of sacrifice. That's where we see mercy. That's where we see grace. That's where we see love. That's where we see his provision. That's where we see his protection. That's where we see his promise. See, for God's people, the, way, the priority was the worship of God in restoring the sheep gate. Our priority is the worship of God seen, known, and felt and experienced in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And also see in verse 1, they built the sheep gate and then they consecrated. That means they dedicated it. And to consecrate, um, they dedicated its doors. And to consecrate the doors would have meant that they smear oil or blood. And it was a way of saying that there was something special about this gate and that this gate belonged to God. But as you read through the passage, you'll notice that they didn't consecrate the other gates. Why? Because once the sheep gate was consecrated, the whole wall was clean. The whole wall was clean. Folks, that's the power of the gospel. See, the power of the gospel is once you are cleansed by Christ, you are entirely clean, not just partially clean. We don't have to keep washing ourselves or being washed by him daily. No, we have been cleansed by him. We have been covered by his blood and we belong to him. He forgives us of all iniquity and he chooses not to remember our sins. Amen? Once the sheep gate was clean, the whole wall was clean. 
Once we're cleansed in Christ, our whole lives are cleansed. And there's another distinction that you see in the, between the sheep gate and all the other gates. You see, at the fish gate, verse 3, and the valley gate, and dung gate, verses 13 and 14, and the fountain gate, verse 15, after the builders have built the gates, they set its doors, they put bolts and bars in it, and they lock the gates. But in verse 1, regarding the sheep gate, they consecrated it, they set its doors, but there were no bars and there were no bolts. The sheep gate was always open. Isn't that amazing? The door of salvation was always open. Folks, the door of salvation in Jesus Christ is never locked. It's always open to the sinner. And folks, it was this open door that was the central to the building of God's people, and this need to, needs to be central to our ministry. Cornerstone Church, we may, and we are trying as best as we can, to repair a big old building. We may repair this old church building. We may start ministries. We may be faithful in serving the community, but if there is no gospel, if souls aren't being reached, saved and transformed, then we are build, what we are building is a kingdom that may help for a moment, but never satisfy. May give friendship, but not give forgiveness. May bring fun, but not deep lasting community. It may bring stability for a time, but it will not bring salvation. Building God's people, living at his church with no gospel is building and living out a godless goal. But building and living with the gospel at the center, we point ourselves and we point others to the saving grace of Jesus and his kingdom. And we have at the center what is the most important thing for us and for others is the worship of Jesus Christ who he is and what he's done for us and that door is always open for all who see us working for his glory and for our good so as we close and come to the center of who we are remembering Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose again it's worth us all asking ourselves these questions will we will I be a gospel witness where I live will we will I take responsibility to build the sheep gate for the people around me to show them the way of salvation what does that mean well I proclaim Jesus will we Will I recognize the gospel sets the tone in my life, my family, and in my home? And I pray that God will give us the grace to be builders for his name's sake and for his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you so much. They're in a passage that could so be easily overlooked. It is populated with names of people that brought you glory, brought blessing to each other, and their names are written not only in this book, and I pray are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And we thank you so much that for those of us who know you, for those of us who know you have our names written in that book. Father, people may not write about us, people may not mention us, we may be seen and known as nobodies in this world, but we thank you that you use the weak in the world to shame the wise. The foolish things to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong. We are weak people, but you've given us a big task, so help us by your spirit. And help us to build and to love and to live with worship at the center. And we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that we are united one to another because of what he has done for us. And not only united one to another, we are united to you in and through him. And we thank you that you no longer see us as enemies, but you see us as your children because of Jesus. So as you build, you say to us, come on kids, come and get involved. Come and be part of this with me. Help us to respond to that well. 
Help us to have the building of the kingdom as a priority in our lives. Help us to use the gift you've given us and be willing to step in and embrace weaknesses in order to serve one another. And help us to do that in a way knowing that we are only able to serve you because of what you've done for us. And we do that as saved people. We thank you that we don't work to be saved. That because of what you've done, we are saved. And therefore we can work. So help us in that, we pray for your glory's sake. Father, now as we eat and drink and remember what the Lord Jesus has done for us, we come right to the center point of who we are as a people. The cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, without whom and without which we will be nothing. We will be building Babylon. But no, we thank you so much because of him. We are part of seeing your church built with him as our servant leader at the front. So as we eat and as we drink, help us to remember that you have washed us as white as snow. Help us to see that you've placed us where you've placed us for your glory. That even in the midst of us failing at times, that you are not disappointed with us, that you are glad to call us your, your children and that you want us to work for you because of your son, the Lord Jesus. So help us to figure out, even as we worship now, what that means for us. In our families, in our homes, and in our churches, in our gospel community, in our nation, we pray. Accept of our praise, accept of our worship. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to take the bread and we're going to take the, the, the juice. As a remembrance, on the night before Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body. Do this, eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also saying, this is the covenant uh, uh, of, of the new covenant of my blood drink this also in remembrance of me and he says do this till I return do this till I return so folks if we're struggling to build if we're struggling to engage this is a great opportunity to get right back to the center to get our eyes on the point of salvation to say oh, Jesus has done this for me this is what I can do for him With great joy great peace great excitement so let's eat and let's drink Let's be there. The guys will bring us to a point of singing together when it's important.